Hi, I'm Lindsay Hislop and this is When I Grow Up, I Want To Be, the career podcast. For over 15 years now, I've been working with elite athletes, Olympians and other individuals, supporting them in their own personal and professional development. And from my experience, one of the methods to help with this guidance that has a huge positive impact is simply learning from others. And so here, on this podcast, I have conversations with women in a range of jobs to gain an insight into what they actually do, how they got to be where they are, what their career journey has been like, and to hear what advice they would give to others that are interested in that career. I'd hope you'd find these conversations interesting and enlightening, and they might be a good guide for you for when you're asked the question, what do you want to be when you grow up? Now, this week, I have a really captivating episode for you. I had the pleasure of sitting down with the remarkable Dr. Helen Fry, and her story was super interesting. Have you ever wondered what it's like to have a job that you don't even have to apply for? Well, Dr. Helen Fry explains what it means to be a historian, and we dive deep into how one becomes a historian the intriguing journey that she took to discover her passion and the fascinating world of historical specialisation. Even if, like me, history wasn't your strong subject in school, this conversation is bound to pique your interest. Dr Helen Fry's journey showcases the other power of a supportive network and how a simple interest can evolve into a really fulfilling career and it's really packed with insights and inspiration. I hope you enjoy. Here goes. Hi, Helen. It's great to see you. Um, Thank you so much for your time coming on and talking to me. Oh, it's great to be on the podcast. Thank you. Thank you. Now, Dr. Helen Fry, you are a historian, biographer, and author of more than 20 books on intelligence, prisoners of war, and the social history of the Second World War. And your groundbreaking research has shed the light on one of the greatest intelligence deceptions of the war, the bugging of Hitler's generals at Trent Park in North London and thousands of prisoners of war at Latimer House in Wilton Park in Buckinghamshire. Now, how on earth did you become a historian? How I'm I'm really interested to hear um, your career journey of um, becoming a historian, but then obviously because of all of the specialisms and, you know, of writing and editing books and becoming the lady to come to um, when we're talking about uh, Second World War and, and everything in that. So... I'm just really interested to to hear about you and your your career journey. Um, so I guess uh, sometimes I kind of start with when when a when a guest is on for for what their job is, what is it that they do? Um, but I think I'd kind of like to take it almost back to the beginning, really, of where it all started for you. So if um, yeah, I guess if I can if I can start there. 
Yeah, well, it started, well, quite a long time ago now, 20, 25 years ago, I stopped counting. And I would see my journey as quite accidental. Although some people that look back think, no, it's not accidental. It's kind of a logical development and path. But I've always been passionate about history. I absolutely love history. And I also have been interested in theology. So when I came to do my first degree at the University of Exeter, I applied to do a joint honours degree in history and theology. So they're secular degrees. And of course, you only have to be on your course for two weeks to realize that actually this is not a single degree this is like doing two independent degrees you have to do all of the courses for both degrees and this is not manageable so I actually decided to do theology and that has an awful lot of history in it because it's a secular degree so it's not a religious degree as in by a religious order or a religious group it's looking at all kinds of academic skills around the development of religious ideas. So from 2000 years ago, from way before that, to contemporary times, I, I studied different religious traditions and different faiths. And I just loved it. I loved the socio-political backdrop that would form religious ideas. Mm -hmm. And I then majored my PhD in the historic Christian-Jewish relationship and the history of anti-Semitism, which of course is so relevant today. And I'm being asked now to go back to that and do lectures, wow. particularly to the Jewish community that doesn't understand the history of anti-Semitism, that is scared about what's happening. And, you know, why does everyone hate us? You know, so bring on, I'm not Jewish myself, so bring on historian, to sort of look <laughs> at that. But I've always had that joint interest in theology and history and in the end, the history sort of won out because while I was raising my sons, uh, my husband had the regular job, but I made a conscious decision. And it is difficult for women, actually. I had three sons really close together and I made a conscious decision. I wanted to raise them myself and not to have a nanny, not to have a nine to five job. And, and in hindsight, actually, it would have been really difficult to have had a nine to five job because I had one plus twins 13 months apart. <laughs> so <laughs> while they're in the sandpit, you know, in the park or whatever, I would start to do a bit of reading. I had to keep the academic brain cells, you know, vibrant and keep them going. So I undertook research when they're at nursery and school and I started writing. And that's really how I started. And then just to say, finally, about how I got into this particular area of World mm. War Two, well, World War One and World War Two, around the area of London where I live, there were a lot of German, primarily Jewish and Austrian refugees, former refugees who'd served in the British forces. And no one was telling their stories. And I thought, my gosh, they've done some interesting things. I should get their stories down. They were really reluctant because there was a lot of trauma in their background for obvious reasons. They were Holocaust survivors. They'd made a really valuable contribution in the British Armed Forces and a lot of them on secret missions. Well, that was it. Once you get into secret missions, <laughs> a lot of them did intelligence work that I found utterly fascinating. And that's really what got me started. And I only ever intended to write one book 25 years ago <laughs> and I'm still writing and I'm loving it. <laughs> wow. So take me back to um, to school then. So you said that you've always had that interest and that's why you 
while you did your degree um but back in school had that always been an interest or was yes. that something that you that you kind of sourced outside yes yeah I had a really inspirational history teacher Beric Coates who's still alive we we linked up sort of 30 years or 40 years oh. after he taught me no it can't be 40 years can it um, <laughs> whatever I'm hoping is not maths um so we we linked up a few years ago and that was nice because I hadn't seen him for about 30 35 years and he was still as charismatic and he's writing himself as well he's doing fiction and you know that that's a special moment if you've got that teacher mm. that connects but I also had the other experience when I was doing my A-levels I had a really bad history teacher he was towards the end of his retirement and myself and another chap were the only ones in the whole of the year that passed our A-level history it was dire and he was called Waffles Westcott and Waffles Westcott who just you know just read his notes and I worked out in discussions with my father-in-law who'd been to the grammar school I went to the same school it was no longer a grammar school but you know way back in the day it was the grammar school and my father-in-law who's now 87 had had the same history teacher (laughs) the same notes (laughs) the same exactly the same history as I was being taught all those years later and the number of people in the area of Devon where I grew up that had Waffles Westcott it was enough to put anyone off history but I don't know I think there's just that that innate love of a subject that's Mm. inexplicable that just finds its way back into your life so I'm glad I didn't give up so was that um so as you've said when you when you don't have the best of teachers the most engaging of teachers but it is something that you're really interested in now I know you were saying that when you had your boys that that you were thinking of not a nine-to-five job and but still wanted to be involved in history still wanting um to do writing and, and and research did you think to yourself or have a goal of I want to become a published historian. I want, or was it just more of a, of an interest and just want, as you've said, wanting to tell these amazing stories. Um, did you have that as almost a, a career plan? No, I, I never had a career plan. Interesting, which is why I describe it as accidental. Others okay, <laughs> might want to describe it differently. But I did start out really to keep sort of sane because obviously, you know, it's a lot of hard work bringing up children. Yeah. And I did, for me personally, I needed that academic stimulation. Mm-hmm. And so I did that. I did the research, the reading. And when they're at nursery, I might go down to some of the archives that I needed to do. But there was that compelling reason particularly to tell the stories of the 10,000 Germans mainly Jewish that fought for Britain I thought if I don't tell these stories who will Mm. and now 20-25 years later none of them are here I I interviewed hundreds of them actually and those stories can't be told in the same way because the information is not in the archives so I'm so pleased I started out Mm. and we became very close friends so they would invite me to their monthly coffee meetings in a continental cafe and then suddenly there was a media interest and they had a life in their twilight years that they could never dream of in their 80s and 90s they found themselves on television on tv documentaries and these were men and women who 
didn't think they'd done anything brave, didn't think they'd made any real contribution to the wartime story, but it took a long time. It, for me, the biggest challenge was getting them to talk in the first place. I had to get their trust. It took years, mm. in fact. And I would say to one of them, your story is just amazing. It's incredible. It deserves a whole book on its own. And they said, no, no, no. But it sometimes it took years mm. to actually get their stories. And they were also afraid to go back, I think, because it might unleash emotion that they mm. hadn't dealt with I mean that did happen to me a couple of times where veterans broke down only twice and it happened when neither of us were expecting it and so that's yeah that's something but but I suppose they felt it well it just happened but they also mm. felt relaxed and the other thing I'm I'm asked sometimes is did I record those interviews yeah. no I didn't and if we think this is in the pre- internet age yeah. yeah there was no internet recording equipment was very really quite pr primitive but it was too intrusive I couldn't sit there when they're talking about their experiences for the first time and we didn't know what we would cover each time I would see them and I would ring them up and say oh I've just got this aspect you were at so-and-so weren't you at this point in the war can I ask you a bit more about that so you go over and so it was all very fluid mm -hmm. and certainly in the early days there was no way I could do formal interviews they'd never spoken to anyone mm -hmm. about their experiences before and I love this I love the interaction working with war veterans and now of course with their families who are coming out of the woodwork saying I didn't realize yeah. this about my father or yeah. my uncle and so the families themselves are going on a journey and it's very rewarding for everyone actually yeah. and I think as well that you you come at it from a different stance of questions that the family may never have asked or may mm. never ask um, that you're coming at it from from that viewpoint but then also having the information from everybody else um, and I do always think of, of different traits that seem to, and it's from different guests that I've that I've spoken to as well, of different traits that manifest themselves in different ways that lead on to different careers. And, you know, when you've said then of, of building trust, of um, it, it essentially it's the storytelling part that that's a... You know when when you're a student and you and you're talking about your um your strengths and your values and and the the skills that you have that you want to that you want to have within your job, something like storytelling, and that relationship building, can lend itself to so many different careers and it's it it's just really interesting how this interest of history interest of academia, um the interest there that of highlighting that there's there's this sector of population that hasn't had their story told yet bringing mm. all of those traits together that then leads on to so as you said accidental kind of career it's it's led on to this and it, it's just really interesting how those traits have then led led to 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 this so as a as a historian what do what does your and this will probably change I'm sure day to day but what do you do as a historian day to day well I think that's changed over the years actually especially with the rise of social media because there's all kind of opportunities open that we wouldn't be doing 
15, 20 years ago. So it's it's very broad in its skill set and what, what historians do. But for me personally, I like to write in the morning if I can, unless I'm giving a talk somewhere. So morning is my most creative time. I'm not the kind of person that says I have to do a thousand words okay. <laughs> a day. And then once I've done a thousand, that's it. I'm closing my laptop. I just do two or three hours, which may not be solid writing. There's a bit of thinking. I like to sit in a particular cafe. I like to walk down through a park. It gives you a bit of inspiration. It sort of clears the head, if you like. And yeah, it's just sit down and start having that routine. And then I might go off, do a little bit of shopping or something that needs to be done, just like different. Yeah. And then in the afternoon, I might pick up something else. It won't necessarily be the same thing that I've been writing in the morning. So it could be an article I've been asked to write. It could be a podcast recording like I'm doing with you now. It could be documentary filming. That's obviously not too regular you never know when that's going to, to come out but also there's a social media to keep on top of so there's lots of multifaceted aspects and interviews not so many with war veterans now but occasionally I do still get to interview people and then visits I schedule in visits to archives at key points when I know I'm going to need what I think is in those archives there's a very interesting and diverse job, actually, and you almost you create it yourself. So you can choose whether you do all of the social media platforms. You can choose podcasts. You can create so much yourself now. Yeah, there's so yeah. much available, and the outreach today is international. It's global in a way that it wasn't twenty years ago. Mm. Your readership would primarily be based in the UK. If you're very lucky, you might have broken into America. But now pretty much your your history can reach anywhere in the world. Mm. So how do you become um, or, or how have you become um, the go to historian for these areas? So when you've talked about podcasts and documentaries, um, you know, I'm just thinking there there could be there could be somebody listening that loves history at school or at A levels, um, but they're not quite sure what their interest can lead them on to. What career can it be if they don't want to be a history teacher or like what? How do how do you become that the the historian that is then invited onto onto documentaries? I suppose the biggest factor is but very practically is can you support yourself financially so I was very lucky in that my husband was uh, lecturing and was the mainstay so stable salary so really if if one thinks one's going to make a lot of money out of history if one thinks one can support a family in a mortgage that's quite tricky so my career was probably different in that I was given the freedom to be able to develop that career not that I thought it was going to end up as a career like this it was just keeping myself occupied so that I could be a good mum if I was stimulated and occupied academically I would then be a good mum in the hours when I needed to be a good mum so that's that's basically it it sounds quite simple but that's it so if someone's starting out obviously you have to find ways to pay for your bread and butter mm -hmm. and that's different for different people but 
but start maybe start writing part-time and I always say when when one's writing it doesn't matter what book you're writing it has to always be edited by yourself by editors and quite often people think they have to write the final version perfectly the first time and that can be a real block but mm. I just get on with writing getting the material down sometimes you read back over and you think oh that's awful <laughs> and all this all the paragraphs are in the wrong order then that bit of information needs to go at the top of the page but if you don't start somewhere you'll never start in a way so you have to have a lot of motivation a drive I didn't intend to become one of our leading historians in fact I do feel quite embarrassed by even saying I'm a leading historian but it's accidental you know I've written book after book and it's it's if I don't tell these stories I was in I was in a unique position at particular points in my life where I had access to these stories that no one else would tell and I thought no these need to be told so having done one book it led to another and I've just kept going and I find myself in places and the ability to write stories that perhaps other historians wouldn't tackle. And, and that's it's as simple as that, really, in many ways. And now I'm in the whole intelligence field of World War One and World War Two. I think I'm going to stay there. I love it. It's so interesting. <laughs> I, oh, I could imagine. And, oh, yeah, I could just imagine all the things that come out of the woodwork. Um, when the <laughs> um, so when you said then of that it wasn't an intentional career path if and I don't know if you were asked this question when you were younger but if you were what would you answer to when I grow up I want to be what would you have what did you want to be when you grew up when you were younger I didn't know no (laughs) I didn't know and back in the day then that was problematic because you didn't fit into a neat compartment and I remember going to careers one day because they had career lessons I don't know if they do it quite the same today and it was in the very very early days of computers so it must have been when I was doing my a-levels and it's huge maybe computers you know you've never seen them before it's just like one per school or college and they input some data into your skills and the subjects you're studying for a-levels and that kind of thing and it tells you the ideal career yeah. and it came out for me nurse or teacher (laughs) well teacher maybe nurse I don't like the sight of blood or needles (laughs) I don't mind having my blood taken but I absolutely could not be a nurse and so I just dismissed that but it did bother some members of my family who were quite traditional well you know go into banking become a secretary in a bank because you'll have a cheap mortgage you'll be able to have a stable career but no that's not me I knew it wasn't me and I've never spoken uh, publicly about it but my father wouldn't pay for me to go to university he was very well off is very well off um we don't I don't see him unfortunately for for a number of other reasons to do with my dear mum but it, it was difficult so I had to work for three years which was fine because in those days, if you worked for three years, you were independently financed by the government for your student grant and your fees, independent of your parents. And so that's what I did. And I still didn't know when I started university that very first day, three years after having worked uh, in government offices, 
what I wanted to do, but I just knew that no education is ever wasted. Yeah. And one day my father had said to me, you know, I'm not paying for you to go to university. You'll just settle down, marry, have children and waste it. But that's very much an attitude of then. Mm. I think probably mm. and hopefully fathers have changed now. <laughs> Parents have changed in their attitudes. So yeah, I don't often like to think back to that time. It's quite a difficult thing to talk about but I think I feel safe enough today to have mentioned that if that's helpful to others and it wasn't a dogged determination it was just I was working in a job that I I didn't enjoy and I knew I loved the history I wanted to do a degree and when I had the financial means to do that because the government were giving grants I did I took that opportunity and even about two months before I sat my finals was only then that I thought I'm so loving this. I would like to do a PhD. And then, well, what are you going to do with your PhD? A PhD in theology is not even in history. <laughs> um, I think, well, I had a member of the family were utterly appalled. You know, you're never, you're going to be jobless. You're going to be unemployable. <laughs> but, you know, as I said, no education is ever wasted. Yeah. And I just did, did that, did the PhD and just one thing led to another. And here we are. Wow. <laughs> thank you for that honesty thank you um because I, I I do think it's and it's like what you've touched on then that there is that expectation and you know this podcast when I grow up I want to be that is that kind of tongue-in-cheek of that you don't always know and even as you get older if you're asked that question it can be I, I don't I don't know yet I'm still kind of trying to figure that out and that's okay um, because there is that fear, isn't there, that if you go on to study, there is that financial commitment to it. And there is always that question of, that's really interesting. What are you going to do? What are you going to be? Um, so there can be that expectation of having a response there. Um, so conversations like this are just great to to just show that it's it's OK to just not have that final destination but if you're loving something and exactly what you said, that no education is wasted, that you you can plough everything into that because of it being a love of a subject, love of a topic, that you will find something that it will that it will work with. Um, so. Um, so, yeah, it's good to and, you know, it's it's worked out fantastically um, that you're still able to do something that you that you love day in day out as as your job um you know which is which is a lucky thing um which is a great thing to do I wonder if if I can add I think it's really important not to live up to other people's expectations I don't know how much that's true today but but certainly in the culture of the late 70s 1980s 1990s it was really strong there were set ideas particularly of what women would do traditional roles by fathers of a previous generation and we we have moved on so far but I still think it's tough for women and I think the toughest area for women in a career in actual fact are the women who choose to stay at home and look after the children from choice and maybe they do other things as part of a career to keep keep things going ticking over ready for post children and a career mm -hmm. but in terms of finances it's something which I don't think we have as a debate in our society what about the mothers who choose to stay at home and 
raise their children they have no pension they've paid into nothing and they are the most vulnerable actually I would work the other way if it's the mother out to work and the father is staying at home looking after the children and not earning a salary and mm. not having pension rights and all the other things not just state pension but company rights or whatever it is so I think there's something to be said there about the vulnerability mm. of those that choose to stay at home mm. uh yeah I think that's an important point yeah absolutely and then that coupled with not having um an answer almost to to what is it that you're going to be what is it that you're going to do um you know when you when you kind of marry those up that when you said you was a stay-at-home mum but still doing research and still staying within academia but without that the plan of because there's this job that I hope that I want to go go into um so pairing them together can be um can be a kind of scary situation really um so with with that then what do your um what do your friends and family or what did they think when I mean and, and I don't really know when you can legitimize or when you when you did legitimize that I am a historian um almost of, of the job title but what was their reaction then when that that is your job that became your job Oh, I mean, my husband's always been 100% supportive. I mean, without him, I couldn't have actually had the career, could I, really? Um, so he was forward thinking, a free thinking for our generation. Yeah. My mother's incredibly proud and was always supportive of whatever path I did. Yeah. You know, so that that was great. It's interesting, the reaction from some members of the public. A couple of times I've had it from an older generation. I have been asked what what's your proper job <laughs> and I I would I was very polite actually it happened to me twice I said well well this is what I do I am a historian no 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 I mean what's your nine to five job a proper job <laughs> so there is a bit of that as well it <laughs> now makes me laugh in many ways I suppose post pandemic we're all now used to a very different kind of workplace but this was pre-pandemic when again people have preconceived ideas of work and roles and jobs that in a sense if you're a historian you're you're having a hobby and some fun but in fact what is your real job you're nine to five yeah but then how brilliant to be able to say my hobby the the thing that I do find as fun as my hobby is actually my real job that that's to spin that then that's it's brilliant to be able to say that that is actually your real job that you get to do your hobby as as your career um well, I have um a grandfather who's 101 bless him wow. almost 102 and one of his words of wisdom which he said to my sons when they were coming through university is he said Whatever you do in life, if you can do a job that you really enjoy, you will be happy. He said, there's nothing worse than doing a job that you don't enjoy. You will be so miserable. And I don't see that as a position of luxury. I think if each of us, whatever that job is, if each of us can do a job that we actually enjoy, and it could be quite basic, it doesn't matter what it is, but as long as you find your own happiness, I think that's that's really important yeah and that links back to what you said of of not living up to others expectations because someone else's expectation 
of of their happiness just may not match yours um and that what they do could bring them such happiness but the, you could find extremely boring that it would be it would be hard to get up and do that every day um so yeah that's all all interlinked so with with that then what's the um what's the hardest part of being of being a historian what's the the hardest I don't know if there is really that's a difficult question that's a hard question <laughs> I just think I'm incredibly privileged and lucky to be doing a job that I enjoy that's so varied and I think because it's so diverse you never know each day what might come in what requests might come in by email just never to be surprised really so I've had all kinds of amazing opportunities and I wouldn't think no I think I just take each day as it comes I I try and think forward a bit okay I've got to write an article by such and such a deadline I like to keep to deadlines if I can really do I think that's important <laughs> and in a way try to manage my time so that I don't overwork mm. and I don't overcommit I am in danger of overcommitting sometimes and I'm racing all over the place from this talk to that and then I'm down for something else and <laughs> got to be careful you don't burn out mm. really yeah so that's the main thing really yeah. is just to make sure that everything for me it has to be structured not not too defined but I can't deal with chaos okay. so I can't work in a room of chaos or when one's life is chaotic because there might be family issue or there might be something else going on in your life that's disrupting the sort of stability I'm the kind of person who likes structure and I kind of create the stability I feel safer if I create my own stability it's probably completely unrealistic <laughs> but if there's chaos around me I can cope with it for a while but then it starts to get to me so that's probably the hardest part of my life in general <laughs> It's, it's chaos I know some people can work in complete chaos and they know where everything is and they're perfectly fine they can only think in chaos it's not me <laughs> it, it's personalities but then when you said earlier of having three boys a boy and, and two and then two twins I can only imagine the chaos that was happening at that time <laughs> controlled chaos yes you, you make sure they have lots of food lots of walks and burn off their energy and that's, that's it yeah, yeah that's it as long as there's snacks in a local park then then there's your safety net so with and, and you've said with your PhD in theology um and and again, what what I, I really like from this conversation is um, it is just how adaptable it, a historian can be, depending on your interests. So it it can be so the the title of a historian covers such a vast array here, and that that can then be streamlined into your into into your interest. And I can. I would imagine that from different conversations, as you said, it's it's kind of gone through to intelligence and that there's things that come out there that can can lead you on to other, other aspects. But with your PhD in theology, do you, are there any, I'm just thinking of, of listeners that potentially interested in this, are there set um, routes into becoming a historian is there a um in order to call yourself a historian is there criteria 
that's behind that um how do you how do you get that accolade of of being a, a historian I guess it's a label that others have given me okay Okay. it's not necessarily what I mean I would agree with it now because I, I guess I've written so many books and I have <laughs> so many history podcasts and I do see myself as a historian so it, it is interesting because it's part of the journey and you do wonder at what point mm. along that scale of 25 years is it at year eight or is it at year 15 it just kind of evolves. And I think the role of historian has evolved so much more, as we said earlier, because of social media, because of the internet age, which gives our view of historians, well, it's much wider, but their their brief, their roles are so much more diverse. And the, the need and the love of history, I mean, 30 years ago, you would have the occasional drama, you know, the historic dramas on television, but now, we can't get enough of them. Well, it's crime and all kinds of other genres, of course. But who can get enough of Downton Abbey, of The Crown, of some of the yeah. spy series, uh, films, whatever? Mm. So that's exploded as well. There's an interest in the public, a thirst for history that wasn't there or noticeable to the same degree, say, 20 years ago, mm. even maybe 15 years ago, we're just starting to tip. The late 1990s were starting to tip into an interesting age where history becomes so fascinating and loved. Mm. And I think we do, as historians, have a responsibility to make that history accessible and enjoyable. And that's one of the things I was going to say to you, actually. One of the most enjoyable parts of my work is engaging with the public. It's why I give so many talks to groups uh, mainly to retired groups because they're the ones with the time but again it's it's sharing that history there's no point I think for me to be beavering away and studying away and just saving that for myself if you mm. like but just get that love of history and history being so important I think today lessons to be learned from history not that I say that in my talks I just just inspire people with what I've discovered in my research and then of course people come out of the woodwork it's with new information or they might it might be part of their journey Helen how do I find out about my great uncle mm. who did this yeah so you can help people as well and yeah. that I love you just never know in a day who you're going to meet or what opportunities you're going to get mm. and I, th- I think that's it as well that just thinking of of when you said then about all of the different programs that are more mainstream now I wonder if that there's people that think well I didn't like history at school I didn't my teacher wasn't very good at school so I don't I don't like history um but then by having these mainstream outlets that can educate them in a different way that they then may have missed at school that then that then sparks an interest in history that they never even knew existed and sometimes it's making that connection that know what you are interested in yes you like that series yes you like that documentary but it's the history that you like um that sometimes I wonder if is is missed if you've had if you've not really had either much of an experience or if you've had a bad experience at school um and that just seems such a shame um that people have gone through that but then a huge positive now of being able to as you said be able to inspire a whole new audience that they may not have even known was in themselves that existed that that even liked history well the problem with 
our education in a way, whether it's your GCSEs or your A-levels, is that, well, there has to be a curriculum. And it might not be areas, I mean, I remember doing the 100 Years War, the 30 Years War. I mean, it was just, it wasn't the exciting bits that I wanted to to do necessarily. But so, so it has to be, of course, from a practical point of view, it has to be a particular curriculum. So today with so many podcasts, you've got yours, you've got all kinds of history podcasts. You've got Dan Snow, you've got the We Have Ways podcast, you've got a vast number of others, the BBC History Extra, all of that. I think it's to dip into, mm. if you find a historian that you love or a topic you love, to, to use the audio versions, maybe to watch some of the films, and then maybe to read some of the books. And what I find exciting, what's happening now amongst our historians, is we're not just churning out another book on Churchill with just a few new letters that we discovered in an archive over there. We are really seeing a growth in new mm. stories, new understanding of history. It's particularly true of the Second World War, and particularly true of espionage and intelligence files that are released that weren't available, say, 20 years ago. And the whole sort of Ben McIntyre stories that people love and historians like Ben McIntyre and others, you know, they are creating new new genres almost in their own right and some of the very exciting female historians young ones coming up doing incredibly groundbreaking new research is is inspiring a new generation and I think that's what's exciting it's not the same old story people are being inspired by this new information yeah absolutely and when you've said of, of the work that you do in intelligence I can just imagine that's that must just be so exciting um there and then to think of what that can all lead on to and what's uncovered there and that it's the spiral effect of of what all of that research can can then lead on to and what's to come as well of of generations kind of coming through from school now what will their interest of of history be and what will that lead them on to um so yeah I suppose if if someone's thinking about a career in history and they want to write, the thing is to make a start. And if there's a particular area you like, maybe go down to the National Archives. If it's some kind of wartime story, go to the Imperial War Museum, to the archives, start digging around and in what papers do they have? Because there's still so much that historians haven't worked on. There's just too much really mm-hmm. to home in on a particular area. Oh, I love the Civil War or something. Right, where would you find that information? And then you might be sparked by a particular character. Oh wow, this story is amazing. Need to develop this. And just do the research, just get on with the writing. And perhaps not to worry about the journey in the end point. Um, and eventually, if you're the only one writing on, well, you wouldn't be the only one writing on Napoleon, but just, I don't know, Napoleon's mistress, no, that's been done as well. But if you become <laughs> the only one that's really written about it with new, exciting research, then documentary companies will find you you'll find yourself being interviewed and it's just snowballs yeah. and if you do social media and you put out interesting posts on across social media and keep that building and building that love of history people will find you in a way that they couldn't years ago so I think that the most important thing is to make a start yeah yeah 
and really to make a start and not worry about oh gosh to be a real historian I have to have written 10 books yeah. just no just don't worry about that yeah just make a start and enjoy the journey enjoy the process I think is the best thing really yeah and you know that when do you when can you call yourself a historian and that's that's a, an exciting part that there is no set time um that you can carve your own way depending on on what your interest what your interest is so it by as being a historian what is there anything that would um that's either surprised you as being a historian or that would surprise others do you think of of the the job as a historian I think it is just so varied and to be open-minded to opportunities. I suppose for me, it's being able to work with some of our leading museums I never thought I would do. Um, I'm an ambassador for the Museum of Military Intelligence and I, I love that role. I love to ensure that their history is sort of out there in any way, if I can be a, a voice for that and support that museum. So, you, you know, you just find these opportunities arise. I was approached to be that. And, you know, it's a, one of the proudest moments, really. The other thing, perhaps, it, hopefully it's appropriate to say, I've worked on a particular MI6 man, Thomas Kendrick, who went on to save a whole generation of Austria's Jews. He was the, we called him the Oscar Schindler of Vienna. <laughs> So he saved thousands of Austrian Jews in March 1938. He was working undercover as a spy, actually. But he embarked on this humanitarian mission with his staff. And in March of this year, this is 2023, a group of us went to Vienna and the British ambassador, with a number of other dignitaries, unveiled a plaque to the diplomats, the spies, the consular staff in Vienna who saved Austria's Jewish community. Oh, it's the yeah. first major recognition he has had. And there were descendants of staff that had worked for him. They were working for MI6 originally, These the staff, and, and they, they didn't even know that their aunt, great uncle, whatever, wow. had, had been spies, you know. So they were there to represent their legacy. And there were families of those who Kendrick had saved, who wouldn't wow. be here without them. So that, for me was a very unexpected turn of events. I was asked to, to obviously be part of that because I'd written his biography. And then only this last November, I was asked to, with another veteran, lay a wreath to Kendrick for the first time at the Cenotaph in recognition of his saving Austria's wow. Jews. And that's that's a huge honour. You, you kind of realise that being a historian can become one of duty and service as well. You do have an obligation, I think, in a nice way to do this, to mm. honour our veterans and to mm. honour people like Kendrick, mm. who were incredible. They had an incredible moral compass at a deeply dark time. Mm -hmm. And I think we have a moral obligation if we're in that position of being able to tell those stories, I think we should. Yeah, when you've when you were talk, saying that story then of that there's families there that wouldn't wouldn't exist without him and being able to to tell that story and and when we said earlier of that there's some questions that wouldn't have been asked and that families may not have ever known any of this just for their own 
own family for their own knowledge um mm. the the depth and and the wealth of of information that that can come from storytelling is is incredible um so yeah there's there's a lot of families that know a lot more about their their history that can just get buried can't it um without those stories yeah and it is important i think we do come to it can happen at different points in one's life but quite often when one gets a bit older there is a sense of you know where have we come from yeah you get a, a lot of interest in you know who was our great 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 grandmother and our great 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 grandfather and yeah. what did they do where do they live are the buildings still there oh they were living in Scotland or they were in Cornwall and you then go yeah. and visit the places there is a sense the importance the sense of place where history actually happens and when your own personal history I think there does come a point for most people when they want to understand their roots where they've come from and that is important and I, I did want to say actually there was one particular veteran well I had lots of veterans very close to my heart but one of them secret listeners Fritz Lustig he was the one that got me into the whole intelligence thing it's kind of accidental he'd originally come from Berlin and had to flee Jewish had to flee in 1939 he by the middle of the war becomes a secret listener and they're listening into the conversations of German generals in captivity German prisoners of war and he said to me no one's told our story and I said okay I'll do you know it's just been declassified I will I promise you I'll tell the story he said to me did we do anything that made any difference to the outcome of the war and he spoke publicly after the book came out and we didn't know that what was going to be revealed was extraordinary that the work of these secret listeners was on a par with the code breakers and that's now been recognized by historic england formally and he he actually publicly said you never know what they're going to say these veterans he publicly <laughs> said that he felt guilty for 70 years for sitting in the buckinghamshire countryside with his headphones on in this stately home completely safe while he lost comrades on the battlefields. And he said, now I can feel proud. It's quite emotional. Mm -hmm. Now I can feel proud of what I've done. And, and that's never something you set out to do when you start your research and you start your writing. Of course, you get totally close to these veterans. That's the other thing. So it can be a painful side of the job when, when they pass away. But, you know, I wouldn't change anything. And that for me was a very unexpected part of the journey but I was in the right place at the right time to do that. And, and he could, and he did, he was one of those few listeners that understood at the end of his life, just how they'd affected the outcome of the war. And he could die feeling proud of what he'd done. And he was still have, doing interviews in his late nineties <laughs> wow. on television, amazing. And he'd say to me, even when he was clearly no longer well enough and he was bed bound, so so when are, when are our next interviews and when are we doing wow. such and such and our next talk together? And so it gave them a sense of pride, but most importantly, an understanding that whole secret world that was so classified, was not released until about a decade ago. You know, the, he never knew. He knew his work was important, but never knew how they changed the war. And to be able to have worked on that, that the files were declassified, what was hugely significant. Yeah. What an honour. What an mm. honour to be able to, to do that. Um, and even more so from a genuine stance that they mm. 
you know, when you said before that it's an accidental career, what an amazing accidental career <laughs> to have, um, to be able to to have that impact. Um, and not just on on one person, um, you know, the ripple effects of of that to, to so many veterans to be able to to have their story told. Um, yeah, what an honor to um to be able to do that. Um, yeah and I was even before that I was thinking oh I wonder what your career highlight is um <laughs> and hard to say yeah that, that's that's it I can I mean I don't I don't know if you've got a, a, a career highlight but there's a few things there that, there are lots um, yeah there are lots of moments very memorable I mean this whole story of the 10,000 Germans that fought for Britain they had their first they'd never had national or international recognition and and this book came out it was first titled the king's most loyal enemy aliens because they were obviously of enemy nationality although they were fighting for us and it came out as Churchill's German army and the Imperial War Museum said well we'd love to launch it this was in 2007 and it, there was a whole burst of media attention around them. And I think they suddenly realized they, they felt very humble. They didn't think they'd done anything special. So there were all these interviews and they were all over the newspapers and on all other media kind of interviews. But there was this whole reunion which the Imperial War Museum had put on. And they said to me within two or three days of the invitations going out, which was something with the Association of Jewish Refugees, all the tickets were gone. <laughs> So they had to, to get in this new sort of satellite system to, to wire in a whole big screen for some of the relatives in the room of this massive great equivalent of the hall above. So I think there must, there must have been thousands, I don't know how many were there in the end that day, but it had been so busy that morning with all kinds of media things. And I was making sure the veterans were in the right place and they were doing whatever. That It was quite late when I went into the hall for the... The reception and Lord Brommel was giving a key speech and others and for me that was incredibly moving because it was the realization oh my goodness there were these veterans all with their medals some of them in wheelchairs mm -hmm. hundreds of them in the Imperial War Museum finally having recognition for having fought for the country that had saved them mm -hmm. and 20 years later or maybe it's less than 20 years later they've passed and my publisher, Yale University Press, and I are working on doing a revised, expanded version of their book because they still haven't really had, now they're getting forgotten, they haven't had the recognition, I think, that they deserve. They had a bit then, but we need to keep their story alive. There's no memorial to them at the moment, to, to the, the refugees from Nazism who fought for Britain. And, and so I think the work is ongoing. And one of them said to me, actually, when we pass on, this was Geoffrey Perry, he went on to capture our traitor, Lord Haw Haw. He said, when we pass on, we know you'll continue our work. You know, you are our guardian of memory. And I think that's true for all historians. We have to be guardians of memory. Wow. That's Don't wonderful. we? I mean, yeah. Wow that's really powerful and just the thought of what stories could could have been lost if if they're not told um mm. and you know with that gent saying that that to to still have somebody 
that's fighting for their recognition when they're no longer here um yeah that's that's amazingly powerful yeah absolutely but i'm not the only historian doing that of course there are, are others out there who are working particularly you know with the legacy of the polish veterans i mean some of those polish pilots they were so brave and and some of the polish agents behind enemy lines some of the other agents behind enemy lines went into france belgium or others that were parachuted into austria i did some work on sigmund freud's grandson who was parachuted into austria not many people know that dangerous missions but together i think we've now got a body of wonderful historians and each in our own way we have our specialisms are really ensuring that these stories are remembered and we're part of the memorialization we're part of the unveiling of plaques and memorials and we do our bit we do what we need to do to Mm. ensure that this is safe it's part of our nation's history and part of making sure that we can be proud to remember their legacy but as I say I'm not the only one doing it (laughs) so for for those that um that may want to join you in that in that kind of sense that they want to um when they grow up they want to be (laughs) a historian um do you have any either any advice that that you've been given throughout your career or any advice that you would pass on to others um that are that are excited um by the thought of of going into this career yeah, I think it's just to sort of follow the, would you call it like an inner light in you? Whatever that enthusiasm, that kernel, that adrenaline, that whatever it is that inspires you, that's it. That's the word, isn't it? It's inspiration. Whatever it is in your career, in your life, that yes, your life that inspires you, then follow that. And and there might be aspects of that that don't work out and you might sort of turn slightly on your career path. But I think the most important thing is to step out to do what you enjoy and it is sometimes hard to block out the noise Mm. of others saying yeah but what about a proper job (laughs) you'll never earn you'll never be be you know able to pay your bills I don't know I think we succeed and we work well when we're inspired and we're doing what we love and I hope that isn't a luxury I Mm. hope that everyone can reach that point whatever their career yeah brilliant thank you Helen thank you um so just so interesting not not solely your career journey but just the the insights that you have um into our history and getting those stories told um for those individuals and for the families as well um well, and for wider societies, as we've said, that it's um that it's our history as well. Um, so thank you, thank you. It's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you. Um, so thank you so much. Thank you. Specialising in World War One and World War Two, interested in theology and history, a mother of one plus twins, thirteen months apart and at heart, the storyteller. What an interesting and intelligent woman Dr. Helen Fry is. And guardians of memory, what a legacy to have. I really hope you enjoyed this week's episode and I hope you can join me again next time on When I Grow Up, I Want To Be, the Career Podcast. Podcast.